Welcome to another edition of Legends of Film. Today we have an interview with director Ted Kotcheff. Mr. Kotcheff has directed First Blood, The Apprenticeship of Duddy Kravitz, and Who is Killing the Great Chefs of Europe. Who is Killing the Great Chefs of Europe will be showing at the Nashville Public Library on Saturday, March 9th at 2 p.m. in the main auditorium. More about this later. Now on to the interview. Since we're showing who is killing the great chefs of Europe, could you discuss how you got the directing job? Well, that's a very good question. Um, I mean, I knew I was attracted to the subject because, first of all, I love great cooking, and I collect wines, so the film was kind of a gourmet's dream. Of course, it was also a gourmet's nightmare because I put on 30 pounds when I was making the film. But I think I was interviewed by uh, somebody. I made a comedy before called Fun with Dick and Jane with Jane Fonda and George Siegel. And, and I think that was the reason that uh, they, they approached me. Along with Who is Killing the Great Chefs of Europe, you've directed Weekend at Bernie's and Folks, and you've mentioned Fun with Dick and Jane and Switching Channels. And you seem to have a dark or macabre sense of humor. What's your attraction to this type of material? Well, I always like doing comedies, and I like, first of all, I like social comedies, like Fun of Dick and Jane, which deals with certain things that were going on in America at the time, uh, in the society. I guess I have a, I have a dark side to me, and I always, I find, uh, I'm attracted to those kinds of subjects, Bill. I mean, of course, sometimes, Jim, it's not necessarily dark things that attract me, like things that attracted me to who was killing the great ships of Europe, for example. I was attracted to the subject because it was, it was something I knew very well. My mother was a chef. My father was a restaurateur. I worked when I was 14 and 15 in the poshest restaurant at the time in Toronto, the Old Mill, and the head chef was a bantam cock who came from the royal kitchens of King Alfonso of Spain. And I worked as his assistant uh, in preparing the menu every day. So, for example, and I've seen things, like at the beginning of the film, Jean Rochefort has a food fight with Jean-Pierre Cassel in Cassel's kitchen, and finally was. Rushford hurls a knife at him. Well, you might think this was excessive, but I saw a chef throw a knife at a waiter who had complained about the way a dish had been prepared. Of course, there's the traditional enmity between waiters and chefs. In the film In the Garden, when the chefs all get together to, to try to figure out who's murdering these chefs, one of the chefs says, well, it's a waiter, of course. <laughs> <laughs> well, I had a very useful experience to help me in the depictions of all the chefs in the films, and I think that since I knew what I was doing, I think there's nothing more reassuring to a director. Nobody's going to tell me that, oh, well, chefs don't do this. I'm sorry, chefs do do that. I've seen it. I've experienced it. When you have the background of experience, you have a very solid basis on which to proceed, you know. Because, you know, on the film bill, of course, I had my technical advisor, someone who at that time was considered one of the world's greatest chefs, Paul Bocuse, and he designed the four, the four dishes that are featured in the film, Pigeon en croute, the lobster, the pressed duck, and bomb the dessert, bomb Richelieu. He used to talk to me. We used to, we used to discuss, when we were discussing the four dishes, what, what we should have, he would talk to me about cooking and preparing a food, and he'd say, Ted, second-class ingredients leads to second-class cooking. And I said, well, Paul, it's no different in filming. Second-class acting leads to second-class filmmaking. It was not a problem I had in this film with all the great actors that I had. Speaking of great actors, I'm a huge fan of Robert Morley, and you directed him once before in Life at the Top. Was he your only choice for the role of Max? Oh, yes, absolutely, Bill. He was the only choice. But, you know, I knew Robert well, very well. 
What you don't know is that for years, uh, we used to do funny commercials for British Airways. And he became associated very, very strongly with BOAC. And we did funny commercials. And they, they were wonderful. They, get, they let us do anything we wanted to. So, so for example, we went up to the one of the shoot in St. Andrew's Golf Course. They featured various important kind of uh, British things, like, like St. Andrew's Golf Course. So we went up there. And Robert and I would just do funny golf gags. And then later on, we would put, put them all together, and the, the text was over on top. But he was wonderful. He came up with great ideas. He was very, very uh, prolific <laughs> and, and witty in all, all, his, all his jokes that he accumulated over the years. So we, we, had, a, we had a strong basis of working together. And so, when I, of course, when I came to cast this thing, I could think of nobody else but Robert. We're recording this interview um, on November 6th, and this weekend our local art house, the Belcourt, is showing your film Wake and Fright, a film you directed over 40 years ago. And Wake and Fright was about to be destroyed, and it was saved at the last moment. And how gratifying is it for you to have a film that has been dismissed when it was first released? Now it's praised as a classic. <laughs> Well, Bill, I think it's a bloody miracle. <laughs> I mean, I've never heard of anything like this in the whole history of filmmaking. You know, uh, a film that got, almost got lost and almost got incinerated because it was thought worthless and it was discovered, it was hidden away, it was discovered by the editor after 13 years of looking. Had he arrived one week later, they would have incinerated. It was discovered in a warehouse in Pittsburgh. And then, and then on top of that, not to have it said, on top of that, to have to, to have it open in New York, these unbelievable reviews, in fact, everywhere, got great reviews, where the first time around, it had gotten decent reviews, but it was a failure, but this time everybody flocked to see it, both in Australia and New York, so it, it, it can, there's nothing more gratifying, and I don't know what I did to deserve such a, <laughs> such a gift. Like I said, I haven't seen Wake and Fright yet, but I've read about it, and it seems similar in tone to North Dallas 40, Split Image, First Blood, and Life at the Top, in which your lead character is put under tremendous pressure to conform to a group or his loss of individuality. Uh, what's your interest in that theme? There's two things uh, that, that, that seem to haunt my work, Bill. One of them was the one you just mentioned. The other, the, I mean, uh, and the other one is... I'm always interested in characters who don't really know what's driving them. That they don't know that there's a there's a dark there's a shadow side to their character that we all have. There's a Yahoo in all of us, and under the right circumstances, it can assert itself and make an appearance. And the, and it's a very 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 thin veneer that separates our civilized selves from this Yahoo side. And so it's it's a subject I guess it's I guess stems from my own interest in self knowledge. I think we all don't know ourselves totally, and uh, sometimes we deliberately put ourselves into dramatic situations where we, things can be revealed to us about ourselves. Um, and also, I think I, I'm attracted to outsiders, people who don't fit in. When I grew up in Toronto, I was, my parents were Bulgarians, and they were immigrants. Toronto was a, a hyper-Anglo-Saxon society at the time, and I always never felt, I felt out, as an outsider, I, I'd never fit in there, and my parents were very very shaky about their commitment to, to living in Canada. I grew up as a Canadian in Toronto. And they said, oh, we can't fit in here. Let's go back to Bulgaria. So I always had a kind of a shaky relationship with North America. <laughs> Any moment, I thought my parents were going to pack up and go home. So I, I'm very interested in people who don't fit in to the environment in which they find themselves. I think that's a very fruitful 
a dramatic subject for me. You directed Billy Two Hats, and it was referred to at the time as a bagel western or a western <laughs> filmed in Israel. Why was an American western filmed in Israel? First of all, the reason for Billy Two Hats being made abroad, first of all, was that United Artists didn't want it made in America. They wanted it made abroad because they had money abroad, which they'd earned, and they didn't want to bring it into America and then spend it in America. So they asked me if I would make the film in, uh, like, like a spaghetti westerns were being made in, uh, in Spain. And I said, fine, all right, because it, basically the terrain was on the New Mexico-Mexican border, desert kind of semi-desert country, which is, it can be found in many places. So it, it had nothing... It did nothing specific about the landscape that tied it into one country or another. And then uh, the producer, uh, Norman Jewison, he was shooting another film at the time. He was doing Jesus Christ Superstar, and he was shooting that in Israel. So he said, Ted, do you think you, you could find the, the locations down in the, in the Negev Desert, that area between uh, Egypt and Israel? It was mostly shot, actually, in what now is part of Egypt. And then I went down there, and I was absolutely struck by the landscapes. They're amazing down there. No one had ever photographed them before. Great canyons and, and dry country. And, and the canyons, the side walls of the canyons were styrated with different, different minerals, and they were just, it was just spectacular. And I thought, wow, yeah, sure, I'll do this. And then I, I, I had already gone down to New Mexico, the south, southern part of New Mexico and, 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 and Mexico, and it was not that different. It was the same. So... And we, we flew everything out. We flew the sets and the, the, the costumes and the wardrobe all there because uh, Norman wanted to stay in touch with the production. Otherwise, so that on the weekend, sometimes he'd drop down and see, see what we were doing, how we were doing, et cetera, et cetera, since he was functioning, the functioning producer of the film. And that's why it ended up in Israel. I don't know if you've heard this story. Somebody asked Gregory Peck the same question. He said, because I filmed David and Bathsheba in Arizona. <laughs> That's funny. I never heard that story. Oh, great. <laughs> he had a very good sense of humor. I, I adored him. He was a wonderful actor and a wonderful man. You know, he, um, when we were making that film, Bill, about two weeks before I was in Israel, and about two weeks before shooting, it was, we were working late, very late at night. It was around midnight. And suddenly there was a knock on the door, and I said, come in. And two guys come in in raincoats and sunglasses at midnight. And they said, Ted Kotcheff? I said, yes. I said, well, I know who you are. They said, how do you know that? I said, you're from the Mossad. You're secret agents <laughs> with sunglasses at midnight. What's that straight from <laughs> central casting? So they all laughed, and then we talked, and they told me that they had, good, they had secret information that certain groups were going to try to assassinate, Palestinian groups were going to try to assassinate Gregory Peck as the first major Hollywood star to go the, into Israel in 20 years, ever since Kirk Douglas made Take a Giant Step. The producer and I were horrified. Oh, my God. Now, I don't know what we're going to do. So afterwards, I started to phone Gregory in Beverly Hills and tell him what had happened. But the producer forbade me because he felt, he says, how is he, we're going to shoot this film. How is he supposed to act if he thinks a, a terrorist is going to jump out from behind a bush and try to kill him? And I said, but it's his life <laughs> we're talking about. But anyway, I, I said, okay, on your head, we'll just wait it. I won't phone him. But anyway... When he came, I usually rehearse when I do a film for about, at least about a week. And he came, but he came a little earlier. And I said, Gregory, I, I'm behind on my pre-production for two or three days. So why don't you go around and look at all the great sites? And he had as his chauffeur, of course, a Mossad agent 
who was going to take the bullet for him. And, and this guy, he was incredible, this guy. I used to say to people, I forgot what his name was, say, say his name was Henry. I said, when Henry walks into a room, you, see, you think someone has left. He just dis- disappeared into the wallpaper. And, but anyway, to make a long story short, when he was traveling around, a little girl offered him, an Arab girl offered him some flowers. And of course, this was a traditional way to assassinate somebody who had the gun and the flowers. And, and of course, Henry jumped up and smashed this girl in the face, knocked her over, went through the flowers, and of course, didn't find any gun. And that's how uh, Gregory <laughs> discovered exactly who Henry was. And then he rushed up to me. He said, why didn't you tell me, he says, about, about the whole situation? And I said, well, I explained to him what we had discussed. He said, Ted, do you think I'm an idiot? Do you think I'm an idiot? When I was back in Beverly Hills, do you think it didn't cross my mind that someone would try to assassinate me in the whole political situation that we find ourselves in? And I looked at him. I said, Greg, you're just like one of the characters, one of your films. God, what? You're a real mensch. And that was it. Gutsy guy. I was listening to uh, David Morrill's audio commentary of First Blood, which is based on his novel, and he stated First Blood was the start of the uh, modern action picture. Do you agree with that assessment? Yes, I've heard that from other other quarters as as well. I don't know. I just I just made a film, Bill. <laughs> I don't know whether it started a whole new trend in action films. I mean, I think that what I think the film worked, that film worked, and maybe this was part of the change, because we treated our Vietnam veterans terribly, appallingly. I mean, we asked them to go over there and risk their lives, and then when they come back. We treat them as losers and baby killers and all sorts of rubbish. And they were not celebrated. We just treated appallingly. And I think that what happened was that that film, Sylvester Stallone's character Rambo, going into that small town and being abused by the local police, was a kind of microcosm of the way America had treated its Vietnam veterans so badly. And I think it touched a nerve of guilt. And and I think that's the reason I think that the film... So when he... When he fought back against against us, I think the audience really enjoyed that that aspect of it, you know. But whether this this was a new trend, I don't know. This is this is my theory about why the film had an amazing popular success. Bill Michael wants me to ask you about the rat scene, which he called the most intense scene in the history of motion picture. So, could you discuss directing the rat scene in uh, First Blood? Michael, how did Michael describe it as the, as the most what? It's the most intense scene in the history of motion pictures. <laughs> well, I, um, I I got about 200 uh, rats, but they were sterilized so that their claws, so that he wouldn't get and Also, we had to uh, inject him with uh, tetanus. I, I agree with you. It's very intense. And I remember going up to, he was standing in the water in the cave, and it was up to his you know, up to his waist. And I said, how much are we paying you, um, <laughs> how much are we paying you, Sylvester, to play this part? And he mentioned some figure that was in the millions. And I said, well, actually, you're doing the whole film for free. Here's where you earn the millions. <laughs> Bring on the rats. <laughs> anyway, uh, but he was an extraordinary, gutsy guy. And what happened was that... Um, he, the, gut, the, the rats were frightened of the water too. They, they were going to drown in the water, and they were they were all over. I had put them all over his back on bare skin, and he was pulling them off. You know, putting them, trying to get rid of them all, pulling them off his back, and they were ripping the shreds of skin off his back. And it was it was very intense, and it was not a murmur from him. 
from Sylvester. He never complained, nothing. He just did it. I mean, this, this guy... This guy had a physical courage and guts I've never seen in any actor that I've ever worked with. You collaborated with writer Mordecai Richler on The Apprenticeship of Duddy Kravitz and Joshua Then and Now and Life on Top. Um, what was your attraction to Mr. Richler's writings? First of all, he was my best friend. Both of us are Canadians. He, he was from Montreal and I was from Toronto. But we met in the south of France. And I was going to emigrate because I wanted to get it. I wanted to be a filmmaker. You know, there was no film industry in Canada whatsoever at the time. I um, decided I would go to England because I wasn't sure whether I wanted to work in theater and, or film. But so I thought London has both in one place. So he said, "Well, look, I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to live in London as well. Do you want to share an apartment?" So I said, "Sure." So we came to share an apartment for for about three, three or four years, and. He, and, and we actually were living in the, in this flat together uh, when he wrote The Apprenticeship of Diddy Gravis. When he finished it, he gave it to me to read, and I said, you know, Mordecai, not only is this probably the finest Canadian novel ever written, but one day I'm going to go back to Canada and make a film out of it. And we both laughed at the absurdity of such an idea because, of course, there was no Canadian film industry whatsoever. But over a period of 13 years, I tried to get it financed. We were close. We were the best friends, Bill. He was my best friend for 44 years. And we, we saw, first of all, like Dirty Kravitz, well, there's part of me in, in that book as well. Because I told Mordecai stories about my childhood, and he, he incorporated some of them. And we were very similar So in, in all his, in the way he wrote. And we, we could almost finish each other's sentences. And I used to say to Mordecai, I don't have to use words when I speak to you. Because he knew we were just had had an unspoken understanding of life that was quite amazing. It was very, it was, it was so pleasurable to work with him in, in that regard. And uh, we saw things very similarly. We saw society, politics, everything almost uh, as, as if it was one person. And I think that's that was that that the reason why we why I have, I always wanted him to to write is he. I would tell him things, and he, he knew exactly what I was talking about, and was able to turn it into dramatic uh, and dramatic scenes. You know, I was looking on Internet Movie Database, and it said that you directed a version of Apprenticeship of Duddy Kravitz in Britain. Was this for live television, or? Yes, it was. It was. Um, we, and we I didn't do. We didn't do the whole, the whole book or the whole. It was just the. Uh, there was a. In the book, there's a scene up. Uh, there's a long section that deals with his, uh, where he's staying at a hotel, a Jewish hotel up in uh, Santa Gath, and it was that whole, to, uh, that whole hotel sequence, which was the basis of, of the because it was just an hour television drama, and uh, yes, it was done when it was. I started, you know how old I am now. I started in live television, <laughs> and uh, we did that as a live television show. While we're on the topic of live television, in his movie Day for Night, Francois Truffaut stated the worst thing that can happen to a director while making a movie is have your lead actor die and before the movie is completed. And in doing research, I've read where you were directing a live television production of Underground and one of your lead actors passed away um, during the production. Could you talk about how you handled the directing duties during the live telecast? Well, can you imagine? It was a live show. Yes, it was a, a very painful experience, I can tell you. 
Well, what happened was that uh, he was 32, and he was a lovely actor called Gareth Jones. And he was playing the kind of Judas figure in the... It was all... It, what, it, what the, whole, the whole play, it was live television, by the way, and uh, there's no, no takes or anything. It was just good. And uh, it was about a, a bomb, an atomic bomb had, had flattened London, and the only people who survived were the people down in the subways. So it was all these... That's why it's called Underground. And it, we follow six or seven characters. And he betrays them. He's like a Judas figure. And he betrays the rest. Halfway through Act Two... The makeup girl rushed in and said she was putting she was putting kind of black marks on his face, and uh, she said she said uh, Gareth has passed out. Oh my! I said, oh my God! So somehow the, we managed to struggle through. I mean, through the, the smartness of my actor, the lead actor, who happened to be Bob Gareth Jones's best friend, uh, he got to the head of this long subway. Uh, and he saw he was supposed to meet meet Garrett there, but, he, but immediately he, he saw that he wasn't there. He said, "I think we should all go down this way, down this uh, tunnel here." So he was cueing me to have a camera up down there, <laughs> and I, I, moved, I moved one of my cameras over immediately, and they came towards us, and we got to the end of Act Two. At the end of Act Two, the makeup girl came in and said, "Gareth had a heart attack. He's dead." And I, oh my God. So I went out. I didn't tell the actors. Yeah, I said nobody knows except you and me, right? So that's right. That we had a doctor and just, but nobody. We've told nobody. So I rushed out, and I said, okay, we've had listen. We've had a bit of a, a, a Gareth is unconscious. So here's what we're going to do. We have a three. We had a three minute commercial break. So I got all the actors here now. Now when you do this, you're going to say this, and you say that. Now you take Gareth's lines there, and then you become the betray. You betray him over here. Blah, blah, blah. I'm talking, and the girl in the control room was saying, one minute, Ted. One minute left. And as I, I had rushed out, I told my assistant, I said, look, phone Telly Cindy and have, have, them out, have the Charlie Chaplin two-reeler standing by because we might just grind to a halt. You know, after all, the, one of your chief characters is not there. And I said, so, but anyway, I, I discussed it. I said, you say this and you say that and you provide you, blah, 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 blah. And took 30 seconds, Ted. And then I kept talking to the actors and telling them, you say this and you say that. And finally, I rushed back into the control room and... Um, I said to my assistant, you cue the cameras now, and I'm going to go looking ahead to see what problems lie ahead in terms of the photography. Don't ask me how. Somehow, uh, uh, I could go on at length of how, how I did it, but somehow we, we, we got, to the, uh, got to the end. Some of the reviewers didn't even know anything had happened. Anyway, after, after the, we faded to black, I went out on the floor, but of course by this time all the actors, especially Gareth's best friend, was sobbing, and it was... It was a dead silence in the whole studio, and it was just an, ex- an experience I've never forgotten. Of course, but uh, and then I had the I had the dubious task. I said, Donald, he's getting married in a week. Somebody should phone his somebody should phone his fiance. And Donald said, I can't do it. I can't. I can't. And he says, Ted, could you do it? And I said, Oh my God! So I had to get on the phone and speak to his fiance and tell her that that he he had died and. Then, and she was sobbing, and oh, it, it was just horrendous. I got to tell you, a horrendous experience. And uh, as I say, some some reviewers didn't even know anything had gone wrong. Another one of your films, North Dallas Forty, uh, you co-wrote that with the writer Peter Gent, whose novel it was based on. And did Mr. Gent ever discuss how accurate it was in his own experiences in the NFL? 
Oh, yes. Peter, as you know, is, is now gone. He died this year, about six months ago, I think. Yeah, he, was a, he was an amazing man, Bill, because he had the sensibilities of a novelist inside the body of an athlete. He was very, very perceptive, and he knew exactly what was going on and in the way the management manipulated the players, etc., etc. And I think it was, to me, it was totally accurate. And, and all, the, all the players that have read the book especially all of the, and the, most of them who have seen the film. I had recently had a Dallas Cowboy, I won't tell you who, came to me about uh, a month ago. And he said, you made North Dallas Ford, didn't you? I said, yeah. He said, you know, it's still the same today. <laughs> so this, this, is, this is almost 30 years later. And they said, still, still the same shenanigans are going on. An interesting thing, up in Canada, do you know the, the, the Super Bowl is the Grey Cup? It's called the Grey Cup, and it's been in existence for 100 years, so they're having the 100th anniversary. So the players up there have asked for North Dallas 40 to be screened as part of the celebration of the 100th anniversary of the Grey Cup. Wow. And when they made the film, Bill, and I had, I, had, I had tons of players from real teams, and I would say, is this correct? Is this accurate? And I always wanted, I would, especially one of the guys used to advise me and say, yeah, yes, they would do that. Yep, yep. And so I, I, obviously I'm not going to make a film which is fraudulently depicts what's going on. I want things to be as perceptive and, and as, as, as real as, as humanly possible. No, no, I think that the book, I think the book and the film are as accurate as one, can, as one can be. But I pride myself on all my films. You know, I hope, you know, whether, whatever, whatever world I inhabit, I want to depict it as honestly and as truthfully as, as I can. You directed Ingrid Bergman in a television production of The Human Voice by Jean Cocteau, and it's Miss Bergman and a telephone for 60 minutes. Could you discuss the rehearsal process with Miss Bergman? Um, from my point of view, Bill. Well, it's just, um, let's say, how did you keep it from, um, uh, for like an audience in mind, because like you say, it's one person, like in camera angles and things of that nature. Uh, first of all, she's she's you know I was thrilled to work with her because I think she's one of the great, great Hollywood actresses, and a great lady. I always felt that as part of a director's job, as the word might suggest, to direct, and to try to elicit performances. And so I like working very closely with all my any all my actors. But what I did in that particular one, which I've never done before, and nobody's ever commented upon it because it's, it's practically imperceptible. But I made the walls of her apartment out of material, out of a heavy material. You didn't, you didn't know it material. It looked like plaster. And then we backlit them. And all through the whole hour that she's on the telephone, because she's, she's being dumped by her boyfriend, who's getting married, making a kind of an ambitious marriage. He still loves her, but he, he's, making, he's marrying somebody that's going to benefit his career and, and his bank account. So all through the whole 50 minutes, the walls subtly change colors. Almost, almost imperceptibly. So a wall may be starting out as pink, and it starts to get to get dirty pink, and then it gets to be red, and then it gets to be burgundy, and then it goes. To, so whatever whatever her moods were in the in the on the telephone conversation, again she ran the whole gamut of emotions. The walls of the apartment reflected in their colors what she was experiencing and feeling. So I think that's, that was the, it's an amazing, from that point of view, I think I've never done anything before since like that. 
but uh, it seemed to lend itself very naturally since you only had one person's feelings. If you have two people, you have two persons' feelings. It's an impossibility. But here was this, she was cocooned in this in this apartment, and it it was a living, breathing thing that uh, was t- tied into her feelings. And uh, I think it worked very well. And just the final question, this is for future filmmakers listening. Um, in an interview I watched on YouTube, you gave Billy Ray, the writer and director of Shattered Glass, advice on how to talk to a producer and how to get your film financed. What advice did you give him? <laughs> it's a question I'm asked all the time, Bill, by young directors. I sometimes lecture at film schools, and I bump into young would-be directors who give me their films. The first question is, how do you become a director? I said, it's very difficult, but the easiest way is to write a script that somebody wants to make, and then when they want to make it, you say, but if you can have it, but I'll only give it to you if you let me direct it. And I said, if you can persuade them to do that, then that's the easiest way. And you write the script, and they see exactly your, your aesthetic position, and if they really love the script, they feel that they're willing to give you a chance to direct it. When I spoke to Billy, I got to speak to Billy and find a, a, a refresh me on what actually I said to him. Yeah, I did write. I said, you know, Billy, you've written two wonderful scripts for me. Now I'm going to write your dialogue for these two producers. But I had a whole thing, you know. Uh, but a lot of it had to do, Bill, with having to, that you know more about that script than anybody else. And then you're going to talk to them saying, I understand the actors. I understand what's going on. I understand the relationships better than anybody else in the world. I wrote it. So this is picture. This is about characters and relationships. I can dig deep because I know these people. I know what's going on. And I can give you a film of the best version of what you see in this script than any director can ever give you because no one can do it, know it as deeply as I do. I think that basically was the threshold, the, 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 the sense of it, you know. Well, Does that make any sense? <laughs> it, it did, and I just want to say thank you for taking this time out to do this for us, and uh, I really appreciate it, sir. Oh, please, William, I'm very glad to, be, to do it. And, oh, you be, one, one last thing, and then I'm going to go. To go. I, have, I have to go and vote. Uh, <laughs> the, um, you mentioned that you, that you like the apprenticeship of Judy Kravitz. Uh-huh. I just, I'm just turning out a whole brand-new print. Oh. As a result of my experience with Wake and Fright, I'm turning out a whole brand new print of the Apprentice with Eddie Gravitz, and it's absolutely beautiful. They're all going to screen it in New York uh, next year sometime. Oh, well, fantastic. But if you ever, ever want to look at it, it's the most fantastic negative now. Oh, well, I'd love to, and hopefully it'll come to Nashville. <laughs> okay. <laughs> all righty. Thank you, sir. All the best. Bye, Michael. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye, Bill. Bye. I would like to thank Ted Kotcheff for granting us an interview. Just remember, come to the Nashville Public Library on Saturday, March 9th at 2 p.m. in the main auditorium to see Who's Killing the Great Chefs of Europe. It stars George Siegel, Jacqueline Bissett, and Robert Morley. Remember, it's free. Today's music is from First Blood soundtrack composed by Jerry Goldsmith.